Trade Talk Live. Off. Should we get started? Let's go. Let's let's crack on. It's okay. a beautiful day in London. It's also a, a beautiful day here in San Diego. They buy things to impress people that they don't even like. You do have to change the culture. The culture in the organization is the most important. It's as if reality is splintering into multiple shards. Welcome to Straight Talk Live. We are live around the world right now. I am your co-host Rick Snyder for this fantastic not-for-profit show that explores the depths of human, digital, and social transformation. I'm the author of, Dis- of Decisive Intuition and um, the CEO of Invisible Edge and also one of the passionate uh, creators of this amazing show. Um, and it's really come about around AF, who I'm about to introduce, and I not being satisfied by the conversations that we're having and happening about a year ago when COVID hit and just realizing how ill-prepared we are in so many of these different sectors of life that we wanted to create a platform to have engaging and transformative conversations to influence the influencers, influence you right now listening at home so that you may continue to have these conversations in your circles and to take action in these important ways. So without further ado, I also want to introduce our co-host, Af Moholtra. Af, take it away. Thank you, Rick. Welcome, everyone. Uh, an excellent uh, episode today that I'm looking forward to very much. Uh, so, of course, I'm the co-creator of this fantastic not-for-profit um, initiative that's changed our lives, frankly, to a large extent. I cannot begin to tell you what's happened over the last year and how opportunities and great people have come our way. And uh, many of those will come on the show in the coming weeks and months. And uh, I am also the co-founder of a technology company called Growth Enabler and uh, co-founded various other businesses that I'm proud of and, and also getting involved in a foundation that I'm about to launch. So delighted to have a very, very, very special guest today. We only met this guest literally a few weeks ago and organically, almost by accident, we were talking about a bunch of things and there was this sort of connection, uh, much deeper uh, sort of energy feel that got created in this um, Zoom call. And we just felt it was uh, necessary, unquestionable for us to, um, you know, bring on uh, Stacy onto the show. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw the baseball. So no cricket ball today. I'm going to go like baseball. <laughs> oh, thankfully it's a baseball. I know how to catch those. Yeah. Catch I, a baseball. I barely do. <laughs> um, and you know, uh, Darcy, Darcy's, I want to say something about Darcy. So Darcy Winslow, uh, she's probably going to be like, oh, please, you don't need to talk about me now. But Darcy Winslow is, is an absolute legend. She's been on the show twice. Mm. I am gutted I missed the second show, um, mm. but I had, I, had, I had a good reason. I was having a baby and uh, I said, my wife was having a baby. And um, <laughs> Darcy's been so amazing. She's, uh, she's uh, running a fantastic organization around systemic change. She's been on the board of Nike. Um, her personal story is just so inspiring. She's actually personally helped Rick and I and the team um, to open up, uh, you know, avenues, meet new people like Stacy. And in fact, the panel we're running next week for, mm-hmm. with a lot of the youth activists. So she's on the show. She's just sent a message. Thank you, Darcy. Really appreciate it. We really do. Uh, you're a great person. And please, we're big uh, fans, Darcy. Yeah, we're big Huge. fans. Please, please continue to help them all <laughs> and us. So um, over to you, Rick. Okay. And so one of the things Darcy said is, Stacy is a force for good. Y'all need to have her on your show. 
And so we said, okay, let's meet her and let's do this. And so Stacy, I just want to introduce you very quickly. Uh, you're the chief transformation and corporate affairs officer at the Heineken company. You've held CEO roles at Home Depot uh, with ins the installation uh, departments and what have you, the service lines. And you have a, a storied career in so many different ways. In fact, you were even, uh, we worked for Heineken even another stint before mm -hmm. previously and you came back. Um, and so first of all, welcome to Straight Talk Live. Thank you, Rick and App. It's really a pleasure to be here. And I have to echo all the beautiful things you said about Darcy, which are incredibly well-deserved. And I'm so grateful that she was able to connect all of us. And so really my pleasure to be with you. So we have so much to get to today, especially around sustainability and corporate social responsibility. And is that real? Like what can really happen from a corporate perspective out there? But first, I just want to start with you. And I know a lot of people might hear chief transformation officer of the Heineken company. But first of all, what does that even mean? What does chief transformation officer really mean? How do you hold that role? Uh, such a great question. And I'll tell you a little secret. I never even told our CEO this, Dolph. Uh, when he reached out to me and said, well, transformation, we're thinking, you know, transform the business, chief transformation. I thought, what on earth is he talking about? And I Googled <laughs> it. What is a chief transformation officer? What do they do? And uh, there wasn't a whole lot uh, that came back on Google at that time. And actually since over the course of the year, for some reason, this has become quite a, a buzzword. But I, I suppose the way I would describe it, I've, I've always let curiosity be my guide in, in my life. And I was raised by two amazing parents. My mother, who was an educator, really encouraged my sister and I to be super curious and just try to learn about the world and come with an open mind and an open heart and, and that fire in your belly to get into it and also see if you can make it a little better and how can you help and how can you serve. And so I, I grew up loving math and science and loving words. I grew up loving sports and loving the arts. Mm. I, I grew up loving the theater and uh, also after university was uh, a full-time personal trainer and a yoga teacher. Mm. Then I moved to France and I was working in marketing and communications. And then I, I did some leadership programs with GE where I worked in audit and finance. I did acquisitions, dispositions for them. Uh, everything from holding enriched uranium in my hands in their nuclear facilities to uh, doing acquisitions for their TV studios in London, working on Oxford Street, to working on aircraft engines and consumer banks in Germany, hydroelectric power in Brazil. I mean, it you know, wow. especially at that time, GE was such a, a disparate set of, of businesses. Mm -hmm. And getting to work in all these different functions, marketing, communications, audit, finance, and getting to really put my hands in the financial statements of businesses to understand how do they work? How do they make money? How do you think about risk? How do you also inspire people? How do you bring people on a journey to achieve something that maybe feels so scary and audacious? You don't even know how it could possibly be um, within the realm of possibility. And then I was, I was going along doing these roles with GE and uh, the CEO of, of Heineken now, was at a dinner with a woman I was on a board with <clears throat> and he had an open role in his management team when he was running the U.S. business in New York. And he said, hey, I'm looking for this, this, this. And the woman said, do you know Stacy Tank? And he Googled me and reached out 
back to Google, I suppose I should say thank you to Google for telling me what is a chief transformation officer <laughs> and connecting me to Tom. <laughs> but, uh, but we, we met up and it felt like there was, there was something I could do to support the journey. He was on turning around the U S business at that time. And then I did, so I, I joined Heineken originally in 2012. I left five, five and a half years and went to Home Depot. Most recently was running their installation services and measurement services businesses. And then when Dolph was promoted about, uh, he started June 1st, but I suppose it was more in the first quarter that it was announced. He invited us, said, you know, would you all want to come move the family over to Europe? Of course, in the middle of this COVID pandemic that none of us had a sense for, is this just a a few week inconvenience or what are we talking about here, the early days? And I, I think it was really the the accumulation of all those experiences, being able to look at the business in all these different ways, being able to bring people along on a journey, uh, turning around the businesses I was running at Home Depot. I think those those experiences appealed to Dolph because in this moment with Heineken, we're a 156 year old company. And the, the Heineken name is the family name of the fourth generation uh, majority owner of the company, Charlene Heineken and her family who bring I've always brought this incredible spirit of entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship and humanity to the company. Mm-hmm. We had a CEO who's just retired after 15 years and our growth strategy reached its natural conclusion in 2020 anyway. Mm-hmm. So we had a retiring long-term CEO. We had our strategy reaching its natural conclusion. And then we had COVID, as with everyone, completely turn our world upside down right. with all the bars and restaurants closed. And you can imagine it's uh, not the most uh, normal time to be in the beer industry. So we knew we needed to go on a transformation journey. We knew the consumer trends were accelerating and the way we were going to innovate and speak to those consumer needs and wants was going to feel different. Our culture needed to evolve so we could become more adaptable to this even more rapidly changing environment. The sources of growth we're going to be different than the sources of growth from the decade before. So the job has been a lot about helping to listen, to bring people together, to imagine uh, a really growthy, exciting future, to create a playbook and, and a strategy we call evergreen, which is uh, tied to nature and the concept that you, as an evergreen tree, you continually renew mm-hmm. and refresh yourself. And that's the spirit of continuous renewal that we want to bring to to the way we run our balanced growth uh, strategy. So Evergreen was born over the fall last year, and now it's a matter of bringing this new growth strategy, Evergreen to life, operationalizing it with a new transformation network that we have uh, sprung up all over the world. And uh, yeah, and then in addition to that, with corporate affairs, I have the incredible privilege of helping to uh, shape our brew a better world, our sustainable development work uh, and global communications and, and government affairs in those functions as well. So it's basically the most fulfilling job and uh, it's been an amazing year to be back at Heineken. I mean, to be able to have strategic influence at, at that level, at sea level and throughout the whole company, that's amazing to be able to have be one of those influencers and to not only be an influencer, but to actually bring it to action. Mm-hmm. That must be incredibly satisfying, I would imagine. It's really um, what I found, you know, as you go along in your life, in your career, you start to become more self-aware about where you're 
you think the same and where maybe you think differently and what's that unique thing that you can, when you're in the room, that unique thing that you can bring that maybe helps a little extra. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I, it really stayed with me from the, the Home Depot businesses that I was running before because the businesses were in a very tumultuous state uh, in the beginning I found that our employees, especially our frontline employees, had all of the answers. They knew how we could grow. They knew what we needed to do to adapt and change. They had all the answers. We just had to listen and synthesize them and then figure out what's the role we play at the center, in the leadership team, whatever, to take roadblocks out of their way, get out of their way, and let them be successful and run and generate value for, for customers. So I felt this evergreen journey we were on last summer was a lot about that. It was deeply, deeply listening to our people mm-hmm. who are proximate to the customer and the consumers. And then of course you have to make choices and you have to prioritize and then you have to align and get everyone excited and you have to have disciplined focus execution and all those classical things in business. But I, I think that that's one of the things that gives me the most energy is really deeply listening to folks all over the world and the beauty and the thoughtfulness and the ingenuity of what what you we can allow to emerge essentially mm-hmm. from that mm-hmm. stacy you you um you describe it so beautifully and um uh, I wear a different hat, a hat of a skeptic just speaking from we have such a diverse audience so let, let me go down that path and it sounds glorious um the first question is shouldn't this be um default um shouldn't big companies or aren't big companies constantly listening to their people why is this so new and why is this so enchanting surely a skeptic would say i I thought that was happening anyway um comments yeah it should be i think i mean no matter the size of your organization whether you're in a family i have two boys and a husband i have a family of four i hope we're listening to each other so we can be a productive uh little organism together uh, i think in in smaller businesses with 25 50 100 hundreds of people i've seen this um sometimes work beautifully other times it, it really can um, be impacted by the leader but i've worked in both kinds of environments where i felt like i had a vo- voice and where i felt like maybe no one was listening to me and the beauty of what's happened probably the last three to five years is that companies have almost, I think, had to rewire themselves to whether it's comfortable or not for the leaders to operate in this manner because of digital. Right. And I remember even recently having debates with folks about, we do a lot of town halls with live Q and A with no filtering. You just, they vote up what do they want uh, us to talk about and we answer those absolutely no censorship at all. We use Facebook Workplace and all the comments of course are turned on and we we listen to the comments. I read if it's something um, that I'm working on, I read all the comments, make sure we're incorporating them. But sometimes I do still have discussions with other C-suite executives. Oh, do you turn on the comments? What if they say, you know, this or that? Or what if they ask me, why is my compensation package so big? Or what if they ask me, why don't we have more of this type of colleague or that type of colleague, or why did we do this acquisition or whatever the sensitive topic of the day would right. be yeah. um, because it's uncomfortable. I mean, I remember the, the moment when I stepped into my previous role and the business was failing and we were 
loss making and it was there were a lot of leaders turning over and we did a big town hall digitally because folks were all over and we took live Q&A and it it was I didn't even fully consider how heavily it would weigh on my soul I mean really you take it personally because you're accountable to those people you if they're having a bad day at work you bet that that impacts their family if we're having a bad uh, we don't have enough innovation in the pipeline or our sales tools aren't good enough and we had a big commission sales force they can't make enough money to pay their mortgage they can't make enough money to buy groceries to their family that weighs on you like you you have to do everything that you can do as a leader to to serve to help and i think that's scary so i think some folks you know may not be fully equipped yet to to lean into it but the world's going there so i think this is just going to be more and more normal and i think the generation of leaders coming up are more and more accustomed to getting very direct feedback and then adapting and and trying to do the best you can with it Mm-hmm. How, to what extent that's fantastic i mean to what extent do you think demographics um i'm going down a slightly different pathway but it's important um how important is is the demographic uh, equation here um so race gender age mm-hmm. um uh, which talks to cognitive diversity in a big way there's so you know intertwined uh, because you have a certain background, you've lived around the world, you've worked in different jobs, not just in one industry, so it's not monolithic. Um, does that have, is that an indicator of why things are changing and why you feel so hopeful about the future? Um, t- tell us what your view is on that. Everyone can publish, you know, the last 10, 15 years, everyone really has a voice. And I think that helps because you can't help but hear all these voices and these views. And as humans, we don't always do it in the most elegant way because I don't think anyone got training on how do you give constructive feedback in Twitter anonymously. Mm-hmm. You know, we're kind of feeling <laughs> our way into this as a society. I think cancel culture and, you know, it's tough because it makes people want to hide and retreat and not have these discussions, which we need to have if we're going to move forward. But having folks that, that you know, it's such a cliche, that think differently than you, that have different experiences, that have different superpowers, it's extremely important, extremely mm-hmm. important. I can't, you can't overstate it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I used to have a, a question, I need to bring it now to my new role with my, my colleagues, our, our team. And I would ask them in our operating reviews, I want you to tell me something that's going to make me really mad because I'm going to be so frustrated. Mm-hmm. We haven't fixed it yet. Or, mm-hmm. you know, something I could be doing better for you. And I need you to tell me something that's going to make me really mad. And that brought out all kinds of interesting, you know, especially with folks with different uh, experience sets. And if we had a, a monolith, if we just had one type of person in the room, the richness of those discussions, it wouldn't have been um, recognizable to where we actually went when people felt they could genuinely express what they wanted to see and say. So, and, and it's really not easy. You know, there, there are places I would use uh, when I was living in Atlanta as an example where there is an incredible community of highly talented African-American colleagues in Atlanta. I have worked with some of the most extraordinary people. It's the kind of Silicon Valley for diverse talent. It's, I'm just blown away and I actually miss that vibe of entrepreneurship and taking a, lots of different creative yeah. approaches 
to starting these technology businesses. And then I've lived in other places where it was harder to attract certain kinds of talent, African-American talent or, or people that had, that's just one example. So you have to make it a priority every day or it just doesn't happen. You know, just with that alone, um, just in terms of the perspective of female leadership, I'd love to get your take on what do you see is changing now and what still is not changing in terms of that um, being in the boardroom, being a decision maker. Um, We've had uh, female executives in the past on our show who've even shared that even today in some companies, they don't even have female restrooms at the board level uh, office on that, on that floor, which is ridiculous to me, but that, that symbolizes like, are you actually being included in the conversation? Is it truly diverse and open in that way? What are you, so I'm curious from your experiences, you've had some great areas to experience that. What are you seeing as changing and not changing still? I feel very, very lucky that I grew up in a house with a kick-ass mom who never, ever made me even think that my gender was a disadvantage, Mm. ever. Mm. So I was very normalized to contributing and not doubting myself. And Mm. it was only as an adult that I came to realize that that's not always the default mental model. I was lucky to grow up in companies that were largely meritocracies where if I could contribute and I could help and that regardless of gender or even age, because the other element is I've always been the youngest, I'm the, you know, always the baby. Um, But if I could contribute, I felt like folks gave me a shot to contribute more and they didn't necessarily hold it against me. With that said though, you know, of course I've seen the other side of it. Sometimes it just takes the form of, of someone thinking I'm the assistant or the wife of the, you know, how many galas have I gone to with colleagues where I was the mm-hmm. keynote speaker or something, and I'm there with my male colleague, and they assume that I'm the wife of the, mm-hmm. and they're speaking, you know, of course it happens, it still happens a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, you know, there's a, another book called uh, Power Moms that this Wall Street Journal reporter, Joanne Lublin, uh, Lublin just published recently. And we're, we're having her join us for a discussion. So I was reminding myself of that. She did 86 interviews with female executives. And it was a mix of baby boomers, which was her generation. She was in the Wall Street Journal, San Francisco branch, I think, in 1971. So she was really in that kind of early days, first female in the newsroom. So she interviewed baby boomer moms and then Gen X and millennial executive moms. And she was trying to figure out what has changed to your point. And it doesn't take a lot watching one episode of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel or something to realize that, yes, a lot has changed for the better. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot more to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But I am encouraged. I think that the next generation we see maternity paternity leave being equalized, which I'm a huge advocate of personally, because I think any point of difference is a reason to stigmatize one or the other. So if you want to talk about the medical aspects of, of carrying and delivering a baby, I think it's interesting, but what I am more interested in is normalizing equally the gender responsibilities of parenting. So I think equal policies can be helpful there. I think that, uh, that also, fathers are being more, it's becoming more normal to prioritize your family, which is a great thing. We need healthy families in our society. So I see a lot of progress and I also feel a tremendous responsibility to fight and protect and pull 
really pull the next generation up with me and make sure, mm-hmm. you know, as, as Kamala Harris's mother said, you may be the first, but you better not be the last. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. 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 Going down another path, which is, um, again, related to the work that you're doing right now at uh, Heineken and what a respected brands. We have a few questions that have already come in just about, um, you know, the excellence that the company has demonstrated over the years through its different sort of incarnations. So if you think ahead, one of the one of the issues that keeps coming up again and again, which is central to the um, survival of humanity and well-being is is the world and the climate and the environment. And thankfully, uh, however, it's happened through individuals and through big campaigns, um, it's it's becoming more commonplace for us to discuss this issue. Uh, I know Al Gore tried when I was much younger and he was trying, he had all sorts of campaigns, poor chap, tried everything he could and he had concerts here and, and so on, but he got disregarded and he got, you know, whitewashed. Um, and it's come back to life thanks to activists like Greta Thornburg and, and various others who we've had on our show uh, and us as people, you know, mm-hmm. shows like this, you as a leader and so on. Um, and sustainability is a word that, you know, hashtag comes up a lot on Google and other channels. Um, mm-hmm. That mention for Google, they should sponsor us, right? <laughs> no, and, there's uh, a theme here. Yeah, I know. And um, so, so tell us a little bit about, you know, uh, what does sustainability really mean in the context of a beverage beer business that um, is, for some people who are major activists, they'd say, well, it's alcohol, not good for you. Uh, you're a manufacturing company. How could you be green? You're you know, you're you're using fossil fuels, you've got machinery, you've got cans that you use, bad, bad, bad. Um, How would you try and, how would you try and provide a contrarian view to that? And let's link it back to sustainability then, if, if, if I may. Yeah, absolutely. There have been a couple of things that have made me feel optimistic the last year. One, coming back to living in Europe, I'm so grateful to the leaders in Europe for being change makers on this topic. Europe really, in my experience, the business community is bound together to do really great work and it's going to make a difference and it is blazing a trail. So I'm just grateful to learn from a lot of these more enlightened European leaders being back here And also being a part of a 156-year-old company, I think it gives you perspective on what longevity and what is sustainability, what does it mean? Mm -hmm. If you read the history of the company, there was a moment in time, there are movies and and books and things that that go through this on the public record where the Heineken family during World War II, it was a challenging time and there was a loss of controlling interest in the company because of financial challenges. And they worked so steadfastly to regain that their shares and to help all of us see that this is not about the short game. This is about running a balanced business. This is about knowing deep in our DNA that we cannot thrive. No business will exist if communities and the planet don't thrive. It it simply has to go hand in hand. Mm And therefore, if our, our role models, our, our key investors and our, our leaders over time have told us that this is about playing the long game, mm-hmm. this is about balanced growth, this is about community, mm-hmm. it creates a lot of permission for the company to go, okay, now I feel like I, we can have some of these um, 
you know, discussions, really ambitious discussions about what does it look like to get to net neutral carbon? Because we all need to go there, not even want to go there. We all know the science is clear. This is the decade of action when it comes to climate change. This is the decade. Mm -hmm. Or we really have a a clock that is counting down and we all have to do our part. It is interesting, Af, what you say about this tipping point. You know, why... I remember years ago, I was moving and cleaning out some old wallets that we were moving houses. And I found this speech that I wrote for the environmental club in my elementary school. And it was about pollution and littering and and how we needed to take responsibility for for life in the ocean and the animals and all the impacts of plastics and everything else. So it's not like any of this was really a secret, right? I mean, for what, 40, 50 years, there's been a meaningful dialogue. But I I mean, I really hope that we're all right, that we have hit a tipping point. Everything Mm -hmm. feels like it goes slowly until it goes all at once. And I feel this huge energy with COP26 coming up in Glasgow, with Green New Deal. Maybe part of it was we're all stuck home watching Netflix and we all watch Seaspiracy and we all watch Cowspiracy and we all watch Kiss the Ground and we watch the David Attenborough um, Life Life on Planet Earth or whatever the new one. You know, and we all got educated. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say even personally, I'm, I'm, I'm horrified. I'm so embarrassed that until, I don't know, five or six years ago, I didn't even understand how my diet was impacting, you know, what's the ca- carbon impact of what I am eating if I'm eating plant-based or non-plant-based mm-hmm. diet. So I think that we're getting more educated. I think that folks in a position to make a difference are convinced increasingly And so what that meant for us was we had to figure out where are we now as a brewer, where do we touch community, where do we touch the planet, and where can we make the biggest impacts? And Carbon was certainly a part of that discussion. So we had announced a few weeks ago that we'll go to carbon neutrality in production, scope one and two, by 2030. And we're passionate about that because we feel like we should control what we can control. Mm-hmm. We're responsible for doing business in our breweries in, in the very best way that we can. And so getting to neutrality there first felt like the most responsible focus. And then scope three by 2040. So nice. we'll be uh, net neutral 10 years ahead of the Paris Climate Agreement. But it really also goes beyond carbon. It's about waste. It's about water because as brewers, we use mm-hmm. water, but it's about fair wages. It's about how we impact the communities in which we operate so that folks in those communities, we create tens of thousands of jobs all over the world. Mm-hmm. If we do it with this balanced growth strategy in mind, it means hopefully we generate economic impact. Farmers in Africa, we have a part of our new commitments to increase by 50% the volume that we source locally. So it's great to find these places where yes, we, we need to source sorghum in our supply chain, but if we support local farmers that can create prosperity mm-hmm. and security right. for those farming families, I think 140,000 farming families and counting. Um, so it's, it's a multi-tiered you know, inclusion, diversity, and then very importantly, as a brewer, responsible consumption of alcohol. Mm-hmm. As a brewer, responsibility will always be central to our business. And we take a zero tolerance mentality, zero tolerance approach when it comes to harmful use. Harmful use is good for no one. So we need to make sure that we're doing everything we can. And our biggest assets, we can leverage our biggest assets 
to make moderation cool, to advance responsible consumption, we should be using our brands. Those are our biggest assets. That's how we reach consumers. That's why we see brand Heineken spending 10% of its annual media budget on responsible consumption messaging. Mm -hmm. It's why we'll touch a billion consumers every year with responsibility messages. Mm -hmm. It's why we will offer, and this is so, it's so um, energizing when you see the consumer asking and, and pulling for these moderate choices. So low and no alcohol products are some of the fastest growth uh, products that we have. So we will offer at least two, we call zero, zero non-alcoholic products in the majority of our markets across the world. So consumers always have a choice. We'll have harmful use programs in every market. So it just, as a brewer, we believe that moderate consumption can be part of, of a, a lifestyle and enjoy an enjoyable lifestyle but also offering more low and no alcohol products because if you're driving or if alcohol is just not for you, we have great tasting Mm -hmm. products, beers now that taste really like beer that don't have alcohol in them. So folks can do what's right for them. Yeah. Yeah. That's superb. I've tried the no, I've tried the zero um, version. Actually it's, it's, I'm not a big beer drinker, but it's, it's actually pretty tasty. Um, And I I think uh, thanks for answering that question because I think it's very important for us to be educated as um, so one is all of the brilliant documentaries and, and thankfully uh, it's being produced by whatever channel and whatever media outlet. Great. Wonderful. I think the other is the big companies and the, the, the Heineken's of the world have an opportunity to have a powerful spokespersons like yourself, because a great spokesperson who can explain things is half the battle. Uh, and the problem is if you, and how you get perceived, you know, you're, you know, the way you're describing what you're describing actually sounds quite engaging mm-hmm. and you want to know more. And mm-hmm. there are many more questions our audience will have. So the idea is they leave the show mm-hmm. and they actually say, well, actually, I would, I, it's not about buying more Heineken products only. Maybe I try the non-alcoholic one. Maybe I research, uh, look more into this company to see whether this is um, fact or fiction. Right. Right. Um, and, and so on. So I think you're making some salient points. Um, one final thing I want to say, and Rick's I'm sure got a lot of questions. I think, um, you know, uh, we've been talking a lot about conscious capitalism or inclusive capitalism, mm-hmm. which has come up again and again and again. And it, it's the same thread that I'm, I'm wanting to pull here. Tell us a little bit about your view or the company's view on um, this whole sort of, um, since the 1950s, mid 50s, I think it was Friedman who forced mm. us to do this where we've been forced to do annual and then six month and then quarterly uh performance updates i mean it's totally destroyed the idea of what it means to build a company i'm a company owner myself it's not a corporate it's not listed but actually i've been thinking a lot about this pressure and stress that we put the entire organization under to prove to the market that we're really doing well mm-hmm. and it, it's creating the wrong behaviors i mean from a sales standpoint gosh you know our salespeople, and you know this how we've you know we we end up doing things we don't sh- want to do we shouldn't be doing mm-hmm. actually immoral to mm-hmm. some extent so talk us through yeah. where you see this going at heineken company are you accepting the status quo and saying well we can't change it or do you see that also being part of the transformation process it is it is changing thank goodness it's changing because you know, we, a lot of companies now are giving multi-year guidance. They're not guiding to the quarter there. The first whole chapter of my career was working in a, in a very well-known fortune 10, I think 15 company Hmm. in finance, you know, doing, sitting at the dock on new year's Eve, 
checking bills of lading so we could do revenue recognition, that every penny counts, you know, getting the phone calls about the reserves and what mm. I, that pressure cooker, you know, I was a, a finance leader for an industrial water business um, before I left the finance function there. And that pressure was real and it did drive short-termism. There's just no way around the fact that it did. Luckily, and I think leaders like Paul Pullman and others started calling a timeout on, yeah. on that, which mm-hmm. is, is great. And the truth is, if you have a lot of short-term investors in your stock, you're going to be getting a lot of these kinds mm-hmm. of questions. Mm-hmm. We're about value creation for the mid and long term. We're not mm-hmm. cutting corners. We're not doing things for the, the quarter. We're just not. And we don't guide to the quarter. And we do more multi-year um, guiding, directional broad brush guiding. And we have an investor base that wants to stick with us for the mid and long mm-hmm. term because they know that that's our, our modus operandi. So it has to change. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of like when you go on a diet and you just starve yourself for your high school reunion. And then, you know, like, <laughs> then all of a sudden the next week you bounce back. It's just, it's not as, it's not sustainable. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, yeah. that's a really interesting point you just made that, a lot of times we look at the investors to set the tone or of our values, but you're actually flipping the script on that and saying, hey, actually, we get to set the tone. We get to have the authority. We don't have to outsource that authority. And by doing that, we're going to attract the right investors who, and stakeholders who are going to support and align with our mission. Exactly. And so many companies don't do it that way. What do you think is different about the Heineken company mm-hmm. where that has been protected and uh, aligned with the leadership team? Yeah, I think similar to what I observed in the U.S. context with Walmart, uh, a a company that I watch and admire because it's a very big company and hard to run it and with Amazon and how have they been adapting. It's really a fabulous case study. And in particular, what has stood out to me was when they were going, moving their wages up for their hourly employees in the stores and that fight for 15 dialogue. And the way that I understood it, and I have completely imperfect and only public record knowledge, I have no insider knowledge at all. But what I understood was that the, the Walton family was, was an important voice in that discussion saying, we need to raise the wages and fight right. for the employee. And those are our yeah. values. Yeah. And that's a similar experience that I have that, you know, our values are, this is, we're playing the long game and there's nothing more important than our people. If we don't have fabulous mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. that feel valued, et cetera, then you don't have a business. And uh, and our people want to play the long game. So it, it just feels it's natural in a company as old as ours with the kind of seasoned leadership and the family culture and all of it. You know, a lot of the markets we've been in for over 100 years. I mean, it's, it's easy to see how you have permission to play the long game. Yeah. That's one of the themes that we're seeing as far as success on this show. And then we talk a lot about China playing the longest game, <laughs> right? And then Europe is probably, you know, getting closer to that too. America is very short-term, very short-sighted. And we're seeing the different success and advantages of that now, which is interesting. Um, one of the questions I want to double click on with you before we get to our audience questions. And so if you're listening right now, please send in your questions. Um, so what I want to ask you is I want to double click a little bit more on some of the initiatives that you're doing with Heineken in terms of sustainability. And why I want to double click on that is twofold. One is I think, first of all, we want to inspire a lot of other companies out there and, and leaders and how they can bring this into their organizations in a real practical way. 
Uh, and then secondly, I know there's a lot of skeptics out there who think, oh, this is just a bunch of virtue, virtue signaling. It's a bunch of PR to make you look good for corporate social responsibility. That's not, a, that's not real when it really comes down to it. And so I'd love for you to break those myths and share some of the real experiences of what's happening right now at Heineken around sustainability, around carbon neutrality, around fair wages, just to get a little more detail about how is that working out and, and what does that look like mm. today? Yeah, one thought about are you really doing good work or not? This mm -hmm. is a very important topic. And Greta, I, I always watch her stuff because she's so informed that she cuts right through. Is it an intensity target or absolute? If it's intensity, it doesn't count. You know, we got to be talking in absolutes. Mm -hmm. She really gets it. And I, I hope, obviously, it's her pe complete passion. I hope that we all continue to have an increasing um, sense of the lingo and the rules and so we can pull apart some of the greenwashing stuff and figure out where we really are a huge factor in all of that is having standardized easy to understand transparent reporting and you see the world economic mm -hmm. forum trying to be helpful there you see the SASB, which is more on the accounting um community side and, and lots of other organizations, the big four accounting firms, et cetera, et cetera, all trying to help companies and, and TCFD on carbon. There are these emerging standards that to me represent the next generation of disclosures. Mm -hmm. You know, we use GRI and we, there, there was sort of a first generation now, I don't know, 15 years ago, I, you lose a bit track of time. It's time for the next generation of disclosures so that we can know, we have yardsticks that we can count on some of the indices that are out there now, we participate in over a dozen indices, but they're really, you know, some people fill them out, some people don't fill them out. One of them we calculated takes hundreds of hours to fill it out, and that one's completely different than this other one. So we're chasing, we're trying to be transparent. I, I have to believe most people, you know, 98, 99% of the people that I've ever met in business have a good heart. They're moms and dads. They don't want to be a jerk. They want to make the world better. Yeah, They're good people, but... We do need standards. We do need some simplicity would be amazing. So we're not spending thousands of hours running around trying to do the right thing on transparency. We can spend some of those hours actually taking carbon <laughs> for operations or trying to advance equal pay or whatever one of our uh, passion points. So I hope in the next two to three years, we're going to have more standardization on this next gen of transparency and disclosures. Mm -hmm. That will help. It's needed. And, uh, you know, we've published our first, looking through our archives, getting ready to launch Brew a Better World 2030 a couple of weeks ago. And we found our first sustainability report in 1994, which is, uh, it's amazing to think how many generations of, up the maturity curve we are now in terms of making positive impact and measurement and how do you do non-financial disclosures in an excellent way, uh, but much more to come there. In terms of specifics and where are we going, um, I think we talk a lot about the carbon work because the carbon work is complicated. Mm -hmm. And we have line of sight to maybe 70 or 80% of the solutions. And then we have to figure out and solve for the other 20 plus percent with technologies that may not be perfect today with technologies that are quite expensive today. So I, I would say practically, and I get a lot of questions from peers about how did we do our business case on carbon? How did we, how did we do all of our carbon footprint mapping? 
And it's just lock and tackle, roll up the sleeves, try to do the best you can with the data. It's not all automated. We're, we need to improve our ability to go faster. It's manual in, in some ways, but it's, there's no silver bullet on any of this. It's just roll up the sleeves, get educated, make a plan. We're now working with all of our operating companies to create a plan for how they'll get to neutrality by 2030 in production. And we have to figure out uh, also as a brewer, we use a lot of heating and cooling energy. So you have renewable electricity, which you can procure from wind and solar. And it's a bit easier to secure from the sources. They're a bit more mature. Heating and cooling thermal energy or heating and cooling fuel require, it has to come from other sources and technologies like heat pumps and biogas or biomass from sustainable sources, that type of thing. So we just, we have 80 operating companies. We need 80 very detailed plans. How exactly are we going to get there? What do we have to believe? In which order do we do these things? Then how can we share the learnings? Oh, these folks solved, that was a hard problem to solve, but they solved it there. Let's scale that over here. So the, setting the intent is probably the easiest part. And then figuring out how we are going to do it is the real, you know, where I get the extra gray hairs and the forehead lines. And it's just the executional work that, uh, but that's a universal, you yeah. know, of anything you're trying to get done, a universal requirement. Yeah. One, one thing that's intriguing, and there's so many questions, so I'm going to jump to it, but I just want to, I wanted to share a takeaway, uh, learning from what you just said earlier in terms of uh, the change that we want big companies to, to drive. It appears that here you have a family, right? A family that has a viewpoint and they own a big stake in the business. Not every company has families owning them, but the responsibility then, and, and Rick, this is us influencing the influences, buddy. Um, the big responsibility is institutional investors on the stock chart um, who, you know, Black Rocks, the Vanguards and so on and so forth. And I know Black Rocks making some noises and doing some good things. I think one needs role models, Stacey, like, you know, your opposite numbers in these organizations who are not just saying, well, do it because you need a strategy because it looks good on the proxy statement or the annual report. You have to have three paragraphs in the word counter around sustainability. Uh, and I, you know, I'm not trying to be cynical, but there are organizations who do, who do do that. So the risk, how do you mimic a evolved, a well-meaning family owned business uh, as an institutional investor? And I think that's going to be the battle that we have to fight moving forward because we're on the same page mm -hmm. here, thankfully, and what a great company Heineken is as a result, but it's not the same out there. Um, hence why there is disappointment or discontent or skepticism around some of the mavericks in our community who might throw their ha hands up in the air and say, well, absolute rubbish, you know? So. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, what, what a wonderful education for us on, on the brand that I've been drinking for a while, but actually didn't know much about. So um, that's amazing. We have loads of questions. Should we start? Rick, do you want to start? And then I'll, I'll come in with some as well. Yes. Um, we have Rahul uh, on listening and he's asking, Heineken is known for its innovative approach to hiring, truly the gold standard. How does that innovation translate to the approach to CSR versus any other organizations that you've worked with? Yeah, very interesting question. What I love about, you know, every organization has different superpowers. And one of the things that I find to be very distinctive about Heineken is sometimes we call it the magic of Heineken. 
it's the wink. It's the clever. If you saw the Super League ads mm -hmm. uh, last That's week brilliant. from Heineken, it's a yep. little bit of like an inside joke cheeky. and clever, yeah. smart, cheeky, but fun, you know, mm -hmm. enjoyment, conviviality. And I like when we're able to bring that energy, whether it's to the hiring process or it's to really hard problems like, mm -hmm. How do we make sure we're paying fair wages, not just to our employees, but to our, our third party employees that work adjacent to the business? Or how do we make sure we're doing equal pay for equal work when it comes to gender all over the world? Or how do we? But I find that that magic is a very entrepreneurial energy. Mm, right. And when we can create the conditions and the framework or throw it on the gauntlet, we will get to carbon neutrality, or we will uh, have a harmful use of alcohol program in every market, or we will um, have at least two zero zero brands, the majority of our market or whatever, throw down the, the ambition, and then create the container and the freedom for folks to use their imaginations mm -hmm. to get there in the way that uh, not only gets the job done, but usually has a little wink and a nod and a smile, keeps the consumer and the customer in mind. And that entrepreneurship is so deeply rooted in the DNA because we're a company that started brewing in the Netherlands, but then Heineken became the most international brewer. Mm. And in markets from Brazil and Mexico to Panama to Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea to Indonesia and Malaysia and yeah. you know, Vietnam and Cambodia and you know, we're just super international. And so folks were going out and they're building breweries and they're starting businesses and they're mm -hmm. bringing that entrepreneur spark. Mm -hmm. And when we can, we need to play to that strength because our mm -hmm. people feel fulfilled when they have that permission. And as, Af as you were mentioning before, if you can encourage that diversity of thought and folks can throw out the weird, crazy ideas and, and that creates a snowball of solutioning and creativity, a lot of really interesting stuff uh, can emerge from that. So I hope that that's the spirit that, that mm -hmm. sometimes you call it green DNA or the green mm -hmm. blood or the mm -hmm. entrepreneurial spirit or whatever it is, but that thing, that magic is a real unleashing power. Mm. That's great. Um, another another uh, uh, avenue here. So Andrea from Heineken asks, as a female leader, you're a role model for many women out there. What is your advice for women uh, who want to reach the next step in their career, but feel stuck. Yes. I've been there so many times, so I can really empathize with, with that emotion. And I would say, first, you can do anything that you put your mind to. I thank goodness I had a mom that taught me that, but you, uh, and I have been guilty of sometimes kicking a can and getting down on myself and thinking maybe I can't, or um, what's that story about there, there are two wolves the good wolf and the bad wolf, you have to feed the good wolf, mm. you know, feed the good wolf, feed that positive, you've mm. got this, bring that energy. And then get clear with yourself also about what do you what are you passionate about? What do you care about? What do you what mark do you want to leave on the world? Mm. When you walk into the room, why is it different in that room? Because you're there. The last 10 years, I've spent time with, um, with this guy, Nick Craig, who is a purpose uh, guru uh, in uh, the, the Core Leadership Institute in Boston. And he helped me and some of my teams over time articulate our individual purposes mm -hmm. or purposes. Mm -hmm. And uh, going through all of your, your crucible stories in your life, these moments when you feel like I'm so stuck or something existential happens to you, 
How did you respond? And what are those patterns in your life? So I've boiled my purpose down to a couple of words, which is essentially to ignite the worthy fight and blow your hair back. <laughs> That's my purpose. And when I can get into that energy, I, I feel like I'm in that creative flow and good things will happen. So reflecting on what are you passionate about? What is your unique superpower? Mm. Everyone has incredible gifts. What are yours? And then how can you imagine that you're finding the intersections of your passion and what does your organization need? Okay. And maybe the personal life elements as might be relevant to you. And then I think in a company like Heineken, because it's big, we have over 80,000 folks and it's very global reaching out and putting yourself on the radar, getting curious about other people's roles and that classic networking, you know, work your way around. Uh, one of the exercises that I have done with folks over time is to take an org chart, depending on where you are, if you're in an operating company or the, the executive team or whatever makes sense and circle the jobs that you would love to have someday. Mm. And then figure out what are the experiences that you would want to accumulate to make yourself competitive for that dream over time, start making a plan and then let me help you reach out to me. <laughs> Let's talk about it and let folks pull you up and sponsor you. Yeah. Spot on. Beautiful. I love nice. that. Um, we have a, we have an audience member named Darcy who's asking is Heineken looking into regenerative farming so that you can move beyond carbon neutrality and begin sequestering legacy carbon. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you asked this question. And we had a lot of good debates about, I hear people call carbon negative or carbon positive, but this idea that we emitted carbon in the world since the industrial revolution, you look at these charts and since that moment, whoosh, the carbon charts went up and to the right in a way that we need to bend back down again. We do have low carbon farming projects. We work with 500 farmers currently on low carbon practices. And we're trying to, as a, an agricultural product, barley, hops, sorghum, et cetera, the agricultural side is very relevant to us. It's a meaningful part of our scope three, a full value chain footprint. So yes, we need to do, lean into this low carbon work that we're doing now, scale it even more broadly. And within the question, there's also the element of, can you go further than just your own footprint to try right. to address some of the legacy carbon? <clears throat> and of course, we want to do these things. I mean, these are places we want to get to. It, the question is a bit in which order and how. Mm -hmm. the, the declaration to get to neutrality in production by 2030, it, it felt like the right next step on carbon. And it is really hard we don't have it all sorted yet and we're really working on it working really hard and focused and trying to create you know even better ways of working to make faster progress once we get the hang of that we earn our way into okay now 2040 we said full value chain scope three how do we do this and we earn our way into a, a legacy carbon discussion part of what we've committed to as well is we want to address our impact in our breweries as the first thing to do mm. versus saying we will plant trees and plant our way out of our carbon mm. footprint we may do that too of course and at all places we have to do all of it because it's so critical right now the science the numbers it's so yes we better play every um, playbook that we have but we we didn't say it's either or 
it's sort of and 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 Mm -hmm. so if we can get to the place where we address our carbon and then there are technologies i was just linking with our supply chain team right before this that pull carbon out of the air Mm -hmm. and then they push it down and sequester it in rock where it can stay for millions of years apparently so there are different companies that are and it's a nascent technology but hey, if you could ramp that up, get the cost down, we plant lots and lots of trees. We try to maximize the uh, ability to sequester carbon through agriculture, taking it down, putting it in the roots, and therefore it's in the soil. You start to get a, a layer cake approach where you're having the kind of impact that we need to have. Mm-hmm. So very much on the radar. And I hope as we make progress, we earn our way into some of those decisions. Mm-hmm. That's great. And I presume one quick question. Um, around startups and innovators and disruptors, uh, given all of the uh, the lofty goals and the ambitions, it's important to collaborate, right? We have to work in ecosystems, but together uh, as, a, as humanity goes. So I, I assume or I presume you're working with third party companies, innovators, young people, startups, the whole shebang, you have programs in place and, and stuff. Just, just a little bit of color on that and whether you're investing in companies as well. Yeah, I think the... I don't know if it's the good news, but the reality is these this climate crisis is so urgent and the other environmental, it's not just carbon, but they're, you know, in general, the planetary uh, challenges in front of us that it is precipitating the most interesting collaborations with unlikely bedfellows, you know, really a great cauldron of, of collaboration. And a week ago now, or a week or two weeks ago, we linked up with Amazon in their new climate pledge where they brought 100 mm-hmm. companies together in the spirit of this type of collaboration. And I was just having a discussion with PepsiCo about mm-hmm. some of what they're doing and what we could learn from them. And actually, can we go in together on some of these projects? Because mm-hmm. as, a, as a business-minded person who needs to figure out you only have so many hours and so many euros and you know, limited resource, how do you go in on some of these technologies together? You kind of de-risk it a bit and you're able to accelerate the technology, hopefully to get to scale faster and bring the cost curves down. All the incentives are, are right for us to be working together on these challenges. So uh, whether it's hydrogen trucks or more circular packaging, uh, eliminating plastics, you know, you name it. So. We've done everything from power purchase agreements with lots of different companies in Finland that are powering the grid across a lot of European companies to um, collaborating again with our packaging suppliers on more recyclable materials to uh, bulk solutions, again, addressing plastic. So yeah, no, you name it. And what I find always to be the constraint is how much can we manage at once? Yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah. And how do we try to figure out what's going to have the biggest positive impact? And you basically just do the best you can and you prioritize based on what's possible. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. No, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, Rick, there's a last question. You want to take that? Um, let me let me pull it up here. Um, well, the last one is just basically... Um, you've talked, you've touched on a lot of different initiatives that Heineken's up to as far as sustainability diversity, which one of these goals most speaks to you personally and where do you see the biggest impact in two minutes? Oh my gosh. It's such a good, it's hard. It's like picking your favorite child, right? which I love my boys equally. Uh, I was telling that they try to trick me into picking, but I will Um, I guess the, the, the real answer is that 
I am so grateful that there are as many leaders in our company who care so much about this, that when we started having the discussion last June 1st, mm -hmm. there was an uproarious, we have to be more ambitious. We have to, we must, it's the right <laughs> thing. We're, we're there, we want to. Mm -hmm. And then when we announced the new commitments, it was one of the most encouraging, you know, these topics are heavy and sometimes you feel, oh my gosh, the only chance is to colonize Mars. What are we gonna do? You know, it's really heavy stuff. Yeah. But to feel mm -hmm. the deep and genuine commitment from our people to be able to deliver, because by the way, this stuff is hard mm -hmm. and it requires a lot of focus and it requires very <clears throat> disciplined execution. Uh, we made 22 new commitments and uh, it's really gonna take all of us, but their passion, it it's contagious. And I'm so glad because we need that. We yeah. need that optimism. We need that fuel mm -hmm. to be able to brew a better world. Mm. Fantastic. Stacy. I have to conclude you are a force for good. They were right. <laughs> Lies and conspiracies. But no, thank you so much for inviting me. It's really, really fun. I almost forgot we had an audience out there. I reckon after you make it, uh, make it so easy. Yeah. And thank you for uh, inspiring our audience today. We're getting a lot of great feedback right now. And I'm sure that will continue as the replays circulate. Uh, we'd love to have uh, you know your CEO, Dolph, on, on the show also in the next few months. We've been in contact lightly with with uh, his executive assistant. Um, so anyway, thank you so much for sharing uh, your wisdom, your experience, your inspiration, uh, and, and really your urgency for what needs to change now and how we all need to do this together. Yeah. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you both for everything you're doing. I love the show, I'm so glad. Darcy, again, we close it out with love for Darcy. Um, she connected all of us and we're all better for it, so. <laughs> totally. Totally. Absolutely amazing. Thank, thank you, Stacey. So thank you again. And then just a little um, heads up for next week. We're inviting back our youth activist panelists because during Earth Day, it just wasn't enough to have one hour with these amazing five young leaders and all that they're doing in terms of sustainability and forwarding the conversation and taking action and mobilizing uh, the next generation of net zero. And so we're going to get more into goals are great, but now what? What's the real rolling up the sleeves look like in all these different sectors? Uh, so we're very excited to have them back next week. Stay tuned. And once again, thank you again, Stacey Tank. All the best with you and Heineken. We'd love to stay in touch and hear how everything, all the initiatives are, are rolling out. Yeah. Sounds great. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Peace. Okay. Yeah. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Straight Talk Live.